Welcome to Rebuilding. This podcast is designed to help the church rebuild its walls one person at a time. For more information, check us out at www.piercepoint.org. Romans chapter 12, starting at verse 9. These are the words of God. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor, not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Last week, the, the goal was to kind of begin a, a mini-series within the series of Romans, and our topic is love without hypocrisy. This is the kind of love that we are called to walk in uh, as Christians. We are, we are not to be hypocrites. We are to be a humble people. We are to love because we have been shown love. We are to give because it's been given to us. We are to, we are to care for the world at large and especially the saints because God cared for us. And to do, uh, to do love with hypocrisy is a challenge because what happens is that the name of God is blasphemed in the world. The name of God is blasphemed in the world when we as Christians do not, uh, we do not love the way we were loved. Now, this is, this is where it gets really challenging for us in our culture today because uh, oftentimes we're using the exact same uh, Uh, We're using the exact same vocabulary as the rest of the world, but we're using a different dictionary, or we should be using a different dictionary. We say love, and the world says love as well. But what we mean by love is 1 Corinthians 13, especially when it comes to agape love, when it comes to the love that is reflective of the character of God. And so we know that love is patient and kind and does not envy and does not boast. And the truth about the world is that they would take all of the positive attributes of love and they'd say, ooh, that sounds good to us too. We we like that too. I want you to be patient to me. Now, me being patient to you, that's another story. But I love the fact that you should be patient to me. The world loves to adopt those things. But here's where the world and the church diverge. The scripture says that the Christian, that agape love, does not celebrate in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. True love, the love that God has poured out on our lives, did not rejoice in our wickedness, church. 
He did not rejoice in our wickedness. As a matter of fact, he did as Paul instructs us in Romans chapter 12. He abhorred that evil. He hated that evil. And he came and died for the the consequences of that evil so that we might have life. So we might be using the same vocabulary, but we have altogether, uh, we, we are working uh, out of an altogether different dictionary, and we need to understand this. Now, this goes uh, for many words in our culture or in the church. It goes for love, it goes for hate, it goes for, it goes for uh, righteousness, it goes for good, it, it goes for so many things. It goes for the word faith. How many of you know that the world believes that the definition of faith, as per Christians, the world, the, the non-believing world, believes that faith is believing something without evidence and not caring that you don't have evidence? That's what they believe. They believe that our faith is just blind faith or wishful thinking. And here's what's tragic about that. The church has accepted the definition. Said, yeah, I just have faith in this situation. And you're like, so you trust that God's going to come through? And you're like, no, I'm just crossing my fingers. I'm just kind of hoping that this will come about. That's the wrong dictionary again. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. There is substance and there is evidence to the very things that we believe. One of those substance, one of that, those pieces of substance and evidence is what we celebrate next week. It's what we celebrate. There is a risen Lord, and it's not just because the Bible says so, but it is because the Bible says so. It is that the Bible also accounts that 500 witnesses saw the risen Christ. We see this by eyewitness testimony and by historical account. We have substance and we have evidence. We are not just crossing our fingers and hoping this whole thing is true. So we have the same vocabulary, but we got to make sure that we understand that we're working off of a different dictionary, and we need, to, uh, we need to challenge that. So love without hypocrisy, as we have seen so far, uh, includes things like this, abhorring what is evil or hating what is evil and clinging to what is good. It also includes being devoted in brotherly love to one another, that, that God has called the church to love one another. That's a big deal. How many of you, by show of hands, would say that what you desire out of your church experience is genuine Christian fellowship where people love you and you get to love them? How many of you would say that that's you? Yeah. It's so interesting because that's our desire, and yet we always find ways around it, or it it seems to be short-circuited somewhere. So we're trying to love one another with brotherly love. We're supposed to give preference to one another in honor. Uh, that literally translates outdo one another in honor. How many of you were able this week to try to outdo somebody in honor? I hope you will. I hope husbands, you will do this with your wives, and wives, you will do this with your husbands. I saw that, Patina. I, I, hope, I, hope, I hope that you will do this with the person that you work for, that you are under. Uh, the scripture talks about our bosses and the, and the people that we work under, serving them as though we serve Christ. You can go ahead and like take a deep breath because I understand how that works, but that's what we're called to do. Give preference to one another, not lagging behind in diligence, but being fervent in spirit. When it comes to non-hypocritical love, you need to get on it. You need to do it. You need to be the person God has called you to be today and now. Don't wait till tomorrow. You're not promised tomorrow. 
The story of Josh and Jess is, is proof that we don't know what tomorrow holds, but be diligent while there is a day called today to be fervent in spirit and diligent in uh, love according to God. In so doing, verse 11 tells us that this is serving the Lord. Every bit of our, be, our, be, our obedience is serving Jesus. When we love people in a non-hypocritical fashion, we're serving God. So many Christians, uh, so many of you have asked me questions like, how do I serve the Lord? What am I supposed to do in my context? Love. Love without hypocrisy. Love. And I'm not talking about the world's definition. I'm not talking about their definition. I'm talking about you read the scriptures, you read 1 Corinthians 12, you read Romans 12, you see the practical nature or the, or the principles displayed in 1 Corinthians, and you see the practical outplay in Romans 12, and you do that. If all else fails, do that. That's serving the Lord. Don't worry so much about whether or not you're called to a foreign country or a mission field or this or that. Love the way Christ has called you to love. If you do that, you will, see, uh, you will see that you're serving the Lord. Verse 12, he tells us to rejoice in hope and persevere in tribulation. And I left you with this last week, that hope is the thing we don't yet have. Who hopes, Romans uh, 8 tells us, who hopes for that which they already have? Nobody hopes for that which they already have. You hope for something you don't have. So the hope in view here that we're supposed to rejoice in is the story, the future glory, the things that God has for his people. And those things should tide us over. Those things should uh, cause us to be so, you know, th those are things that we should be so fixated upon that they would cause us to walk after him and to be at peace and to know that he is king and he is Lord. And then that last piece that he, that he shares, he says, persevere in tribulation. And that's what you do here and now. That's what you do every day of your life. There are challenges in your life. There are tribulations and trials and sorrows that you face every day. But guess what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to persevere through them. Persevere. Why? Because the world's watching. The world's watching. And as we see in Peter's epistles, uh, he tells us that the world will ask of the hope that you have. But I am going to tell you, they will only ask you of the hope that you have if there is a, a demonstrable hope that you have. <laughs> if you are a bump on a log and a grumpy old curmudgeon, they're not, right? <laughs> Seriously, they're not going to be asking you anything of your life. I, I mean, if you look like Nathan Daniels, they're not going to ask you of the hope that you have. I do want to point something out here. I, I, I went to stage three last week in church discipline for Nathan Daniels on Lord of the Rings. But, but today, I have to go to stage three with his wife. Shelby said that watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy was like giving birth, except for there's no reward at the end. Get out. Thank you, Ben. And Ben, and Ben will enforce it. <laughs> and I would be scared of him if I were you. Okay. Unbelievable. I'm going into deep mourning and prayer for this church. It's unbelievable. Okay. So 
Let's continue into verse 12 and and let's look at that final piece. And then I want to spend some time uh, understanding verse 13. And and truth be told, church, I might only get through verse 13 today for a very important reason. That what Paul is saying here about non-hypocritical love is so uh, contextually rooted in the story of God that when you see it, you'll understand why Paul seriously wants people to be hospitable and to care for the needs of the saints. But the the last part of verse 12 says to be devoted to prayer. Uh, We all know that passage in scripture that tells us that we are are to pray without ceasing. Who's got that down? (laughs) I don't have that down. But we're supposed to pray without ceasing. Let me me help you out with something very important. Uh, We already read in Romans that when we don't know how to pray as we ought, who's interceding for us? The Spirit of God. He is our intercessor, and He's interceding for us with, with words or with groans that are too deep for words. What I want you to understand is although we can't raise our hands in our own willpower and say, I pray without ceasing, what we can know is that we pray without ceasing. Because the Spirit of God is always interceding on our behalf. And then at the end of that section, Romans 8, 9, and 10, uh, and 11, you see that Jesus himself is interceding on our behalf. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father and he is talking to his Father about your needs and my needs and what is going on in the lives of his saints. So, so remember this. We, we may not be able to say, yeah, I'm so good and I'm, I'm so good at praying that I pray without ceasing. But God is interceding on your behalf. That does not mean, please hear me, same thing that we've done with holiness, the same thing we've done with obedience. That does not mean you're off the hook. That does not mean, well, the Spirit of God's praying, so I just get to skate around and do whatever. No, 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 no. When does the Spirit of God pray on your behalf? When, when you don't know how you ought to pray. Most of us know how we ought to pray. Most of us know in any situation how we ought to pray the will of God. And we need to make sure, just like in holiness, just like in repentance, just like in obedience, that we submit to God and say, I hear you calling me, Lord. I know you want to talk to me. Let's talk. That's what we need to be doing. So, love without hypocrisy is a people devoted to prayer. If you want two uh, scripture references that will help you study this week, look up Acts 1.14 and 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. That's Acts 1.14 and 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18. Okay, verse 13. This is just a powerful, powerful verse. Here's what he says. He says, contribute to the needs of the saints, or being devoted in prayer, rejoicing in hope, all of those things, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Contributing to the needs of the saints and practicing hospitality. There were three main people groups that were the object of contribution in the first century church. And you can see this in Acts chapters uh, 2, 3, and 4. You'll see this all the way up uh, through the book of Acts. You'll see this in a couple other passages that you can write down. Romans 15, uh, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 9, 1, and Hebrews 6, 10. I'll read those again for you. Romans chapter 15, verse 25. 1 Corinthians 16, 15, and 2 Corinthians 9, 1, as well as Hebrews 6, 10. The three people groups, the three objects of contribution were as follows. Number one, we had the saints at large, the saints in general. After the day of Pentecost, we read in the book of Acts that, that uh, no one had need 
Isn't that an amazing statement? Nobody had need, that they sold their possessions and they gave to those who were in need and that everybody was, uh, was together in unity and they were focusing on the kingdom of God. That's a pretty powerful picture in your mind. I do want to say something about government or, or uh, governmental political theory. This was not some sort of advocation for uh, early socialism or something like this. This was that the people of God were so in love with the Savior that had bought them and so in love with those that he had bought that, that they didn't count their possessions as their identity as we do as Americans. They didn't, they didn't view their house and their cars and their stuff as who they are. They didn't add up at the end all the toys that they had and said well I lived a pretty good life that wasn't what it was and the two people Ananias and Sapphira who did died because they didn't understand what was going on they lied to the spirit of God the scripture says but these people weren't advocating for a political philosophy instead they were so apprehended by the spirit of God they loved each other that selflessly and so it's an amazing idea. I believe that we are a far cry from that. But that was the way they lived. And so they gave and they gave and they gave. They sold what they had to give to another. This was the way they looked at it. So the first people that were uh, objects of contribution in the first century were the saints at large, the people of God. The second group of people that were objects of contribution, uh, and I know what this is going to sound like, so please just bear with me, were the pastors and the teachers, those who were devoted to preaching the word of God. Jesus says that the, uh, the ox should not be muzzled as they're treading out the grain. Let me give you what he's talking about. He's saying that as, as a pastor, as a teacher, is doing the work of the master, that they, are, they should be allowed to glean as they go along. Long. Now, I, I'm kind of slightly offended that Jesus compares me with a, an ox, but you know, uh, whatever. The, the truth, though, is we're all sheep, so you're not off the hook, okay? So we're all sheep, and I just happen to be a stinky old ox. So, but the idea was the contributions were made to the saints. The contributions, contributions were made to the ministers of the gospel. But last but not least, and this is where it's contextually rooted, the contributions were made to what Jesus' brother James calls pure and undefiled religion. And that is that they were made to the widow and the orphan and the poor. Contribution was made to, to the least of these. And just so you understand uh, that this didn't mean just Christian widow, orphan, and poor, uh, what we're going to see in a little bit shows us that he even includes the foreigner in this great command that they're supposed to, supposed to do. So anybody who would come into the kingdom of God, anyone who would come in to uh, the presence of the saints, they were to care for. Uh, the first century church took this so seriously that they would sacrifice everything they had. They would give, Paul says in one of, of his epistles, that they gave beyond what they had to accomplish the goal. Do you realize what that implies? If you give beyond what you have, you're either, you're either going into your savings or you're borrowing in order to help the needs of another. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's, that that's the exact picture of it, but it's something that we should consider. So they gave beyond what they had to help people. Here, here's what happened in the first century. In Rome in particular, and this is obviously where we're at, but in Rome in particular, the, uh, the, the children who were born with a defect... Children who were born blind or lame or, or, uh, or in some way with a defect, they were, they were not kept. How many of you know this? 
There was, there was not compassion in the first century. This was very much the China model. It wasn't just that if you didn't have a son, but if you had a child with any defect, and especially if it was a little girl. The first century, uh, first century Romans, and this went on for a long time and before Jesus hits the scene, but they would actually put those little girls and those little kids with a defect out on the street corner and they would let them die. And you would walk by them on a regular basis. Historians have recorded this in great detail. That you would walk by them and you would see this slumped over child or you would see this slumped over uh, vagabond or, or, or broken person and they didn't care. They just walked by and they just kept going. Just in case you think that that's just an ancient, archaic way of doing it. The same problem happened in the time of a, a man named George Mueller. George Mueller was, was known as the, the people saint because he cared for those who nobody cared for. And he was of an upper class and made a mess out of his life. So if you, you just want to study somebody's life, George Mueller, he's a, a German something or other. But he was, he was a high-end guy, and then he, he just gave it all up so that he could help the poor, the widows, uh, the orphans, those people, all because he got apprehended by the Spirit of God in his conversion. It's just an amazing thing. So here's what I'm getting at. The first century didn't care about those people. They left them to die. And you know what the Christians were noted, noted to do? They were noted to collect all of them. All of them. They would bring them into their house. I'm telling you, the burden that that puts on your house, unbelievable, probably insurmountable, because if you were a Christian in early days, or if, especially if you were a Christian among Jewish people, you were put out of the, the synagogue and the square and being able to buy and sell and trade. There was a lot of problems if you confess Jesus or profess Jesus as your Lord. And so what these Christians would do is that they would collect all of these children that nobody wanted. And why did they do it? Because they viewed it as an awesome opportunity to share the gospel. And many of these people become the, 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 the core of the church in Rome. In the first 250, in the first 300 years of the Roman Empire, or first 300 years after Christ, the church grew from somewhere around 7,000, around 50 A.D., to over 30 and 40 million in just 150, 200 years. Uh, this is just an amazing jump of people. But why? Because historians note over and over and over that what the Christians were doing was they were collecting all the people that nobody wanted. And they loved them. And they cared for them. And they showed them the love of Jesus. And they made disciples out of those people. So it's an amazing thing. Now, what does this have to do with the context? What's this have to do with anything that we're talking about? Well, contributing to the needs of the saints, again, was the saints proper. It was the people who ministered the gospel, and it was the widow, the orphan, and the poor. But why the widow and the orphan and the poor? Because this has always been God's plan. This has always been God's plan. How many of you remember what today is in the Easter tradition? Today is... Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. What does Palm Sunday represent? 
It's that time when Jesus' triumphal entry took place and he, and he marched into the city and people thought, this is awesome because here's our king and he's finally going to whip everybody and we're going to be good, okay? And so Jesus is marching in. He's on a donkey and they're throwing their cloaks before him. They're throwing palm branches. By the way, this is what you did when a king entered according to uh, ancient history. And so they put these palm branches, they put these cloaks down and he's walking in on his donkey. Do you know what happens immediately after his triumphal entry? as he walks into the city gate. An amazing story that we forget to put in its right timeline. He turns the tables in the temple. So he goes in, in this triumphal entry, and what does he see? He sees all of these people that are changing money at their tables, and he's infuriated. It says that the zeal for his father's house consumed him, and that he was going to, uh, that he was, his words were that this house should be a what? A house of prayer. It should be a house of prayer, but you've made it what? A den of robbers. It's really important that you know that language. Now, if the Lord of creation uh, and Paul understood anything, that was they understood the word of God. They understood what was said. Turn with me in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. Now, who inspired the word of God to be written? The Holy Spirit. God himself inspired the word to be written. So when Jesus uses the term den of robbers, do you think there's even a slight chance he's referring to when he inspired it to be said a long time ago? There's a large chance. He's, he's not a God of waste. He, he, he does what he intends to do. It's really an important thing. So look at what he says here. Jeremiah is talking to the people of God. Uh, this is Judah specifically who has gone astray. And he says this. He says, has this house, verse 11 of chapter 7, has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight? Behold, I even I have seen it, declares the Lord. So he calls them a den of robbers. Why did he call them a den of robbers? Well, modern theologians and Jewish scholars would say that why Jesus did it was because he was infuriated at how they would oppress people financially and that this was a political revolution that Jesus was creating and he was trying to do something politically and he wanted to upset the apple cart. Maybe, maybe in one small corner of his mind that could have been a a piece of what he was doing. But here is why Jeremiah was told by God to call this place a den of robbers. Rewind back to verse 4. Do not trust in deceptive words, he's talking to Judah, saying, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Their magic mantra wasn't going to save them. You can say all day long, I'm a person of God, I'm a child of God, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. Unless you are one, your mouth doesn't matter. Do you know that? This is really, really important for the modern world to hear. Lots of people, I think the last estimation is somewhere around 70 to 80% of Americans profess themselves to be Christians. You know what would be true if we were Christians at 80% of America? We would change the world. But we're not. We have a lot of people who say, this is the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. 
nonsense. You will know them by their fruit is what the scripture says. So here's, here's what he goes on to say. He says, don't, don't trust in these particular things, these deceptive words. Verse 5, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly practice justice between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, nor walk after other gods to your own ruin, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will, will you steal, murder, and commit adultery, and swear falsely, uh, and offer sacrifices to Baal, and walk after other gods that you have not known? Then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we're delivered. Will you say that? That you may do all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers? So we go back to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12 verse 13. He says, I want you to contribute to the needs of the saints. Who are the needs of the saints? Saints proper, those who ministered the gospel, and every foreigner, widow, orphan, and poor that was needed. Why? Because God's desire has always been for those that everyone else has written off because he loves the least of these. And what is happening in Romans 12 if we will live a love void of hypocrisy is that we will fulfill the very thing that Judah did not do. We will do what God has called us to do, and that is to love, love, love by God's definition. But we will love, love, love those people, and we will practice hospitality. The word there, practice hospitality, literally translates pursue hospitality. You ever met somebody who pursues hospitality? Like they're, You're like, whoa, dude, <laughs> you have to back up off me, right? You're, you're a little too aggressive. I love people like that. Amanda is one of them. Where are you, Amanda? Raise your hand. She, she aggressively pursues hospitality. So in the coming months, in the coming years, we're going to take cues from Amanda. Like, go and beat their door down. It's good. You can do it. But it's really an important thing. God has called us to do this. The contextual connection of all of this is, is this. What God had called Israel to do through his law and through his commands was to be a blessing to the whole world. What Israel did not do was be a blessing to the whole world. What God calls them to via prophets is to be a blessing to the whole world. And what Judah still did not listen to was to be a blessing to the whole world. Paul comes in in Romans chapter 12 and he says, here's the deal. I want you to be a people of love. And I want you to be a people of love as per God's definition. You can look at my other writing in 1 Corinthians 12 to find that out. That's not what he said, but you know, you can look at that. You can study the principles and look at the practical outflow of it. I want you to be this people, and I don't want you to be a people who do this with hypocrisy in your heart. I want you to be the very people my people were supposed to be. That's what God is calling us to. So, should we give as a church? I know pastor and a money talk. That's not what I'm doing, right? Should we give? I'm just asking. I mean, I can give you my answer, but my answer is going to have a different information behind it. 
most likely. Should we give? Of course we should give. Do we, uh, do we give 10% and that way we feel like we've checked the box off and, and we're honoring God and, and this is the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord. I tithe, I tithe, I tithe. It's not like Beetlejuice. Nothing happens at the end of it, okay? Right? I tithe, I tithe, I tithe. No, no. You know what the scripture talks about in the New Testament? It talks about a cheerful giver. It talks about one who gives not under compulsion. Now, you know what the church has done with that? The same thing they've done with the grace message. They said, well, I'm saved by grace. It's not by anything I do, so I won't do anything. That's just crazy. That's not what the scriptures tell us. But what the scripture does tell us is that we're to be a people of generosity. What are the three directions of that generosity? Well, we see it right there. Of course you should give to the saints proper. Do you have to give that through the church? No, don't. Please just give to people. Love them. Give them your car. Give them your shirt. Give them whatever it is that you can give them. That's what you're called to do. This generous giving. Should you support the work of the ministry? Yes, you should. And that's all that I'll leave it at. You should support the work of the ministry. And then, who else are we supposed to support in our generous giving? The widow, the orphan, the poor, the alien, the stranger, the people who have been left by the street side that nobody actually wants or cares for anymore. This is what we're called to do. And why are we called to do it? Because this has always been the call of God. This has always been the call of God. Barney this morning shares this uh, amazing psalm in which uh, the, the psalmist says that God's, uh, it's just another iteration of God's mercy endures forever. But in this psalm, he says, your love extends to all, to the ends of the world. God's creation is precious to him. Whether it's precious to you is another matter. But God's creation is precious to him. And he has called us as representatives, his hands and feet here on this earth, to be just that, his hands and feet on this earth. This morning, we'll we'll continue this next week by talking about uh, deeper things, about what we should do with those who persecute us and those who come against us in many different ways. But this morning, I want you to keep your mind focused on what love, void of hypocrisy, actually is. And then I want you to know that that kind of love is serving the Lord. That kind of love is honoring God with everything you have. Amen. Thanks so much for listening to Rebuilding from Pierce Point Community Church. We hope that today's podcast will help you become a more connected part of Christ's body. Remember to check out our website at piercepoint.org for more information.